Matthew 21 and verse 1, Jesus leading the disciples up towards Jerusalem. So, let's hear the voice of the Lord our God. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone sees anything, uh, says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before them and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you remain the prophet, (laughs) Jesus. You remain the one um, who speaks to us. You remain the one, uh, the only one who can open our eyes, who can speak not just to our ears, but to the depths of our hearts. Uh, And so, Lord Jesus, through your spirit, speak to us today, we pray. Uh, We ask that everything that comes to my lips that is not true and good would melt and fade away. But all that is true, however weak and failing, uh, would it become a seed of life in our inmost being and bear fruit in our lives. This we ask for your glory's sake. Amen. Well, imagine... News 24, um, the the cameras zoom in on a man who's just arrived at the head of an army in Britain. Uh, As he gets to the beach, uh, you see he's wearing a a laurel wreath and a toga. Uh, He he strides up to the beach and there on the beach is a rock, a great stone with a sword in it. And he walks to the sword, and after several of his soldiers have tried to to pull the sword out and failed, he reaches down, pulls out the sword, and holds it aloft. Uh, He announces to the cameras that he's come to conquer, and he heads straight to Hastings. And there he awaits battle. Uh, He tells the reporters that his nickname is the Lionheart. Uh, You notice that he's had six wives. That every time the cameras catch him, he makes a kind of V sign, V for victory sign, uh, while smoking large cigars. What do you make of that? Pretty bizarre, I'll grant you that. Okay, unlikely, I'll grant you that. I don't know how good your English history is, your British history is. But hopefully there's enough in there to realise that, daft as it might sound... A person who did all those things would very clearly be trying to summon up the spirit, evoke the image of all sorts 
of rulers. Richard the Lionheart, King Arthur pulling the sword from the stone. Churchill giving the big V for victory sign and smoking uh, the big fat cigars. Henry with his uh, eight with his six wives. Caesar with his laurel wreath. Well, all these images, we, we know instantly what they mean. In the same way, children, if you see someone wearing a crown, they don't need to have a T-shirt on saying, I'm a king, do they? You know because they're wearing a crown that they're a king. Images tell stories. If you walk into a room and there's a tree and it's covered in sparkling lights, children, and underneath it are presents and tinsel and there's a little angel sat on top, you know what time of year it is, don't you? If that appears on a TV show, you know it's Christmas. Images tell stories. Images speak. And in this passage of of, uh, Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 21, uh, we get a royal arrival. And it's a royal arrival that is so full of Old Testament imagery that we can't possibly do justice to it this morning. Every sentence, almost every word is is, is drawn from the Old Testament. As we've gone through Matthew's Gospel over the years, something quite strange has happened. We've been told that Jesus is the Son of God come to earth. Uh, Right back at the beginning, uh, um, Mary and Joseph were told that Jesus will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And to call him Joshua, Jesus, as we call him, which means he saves. We've known that Jesus is God come to save right from the beginning. And yet constantly when Jesus heals people, he'll say something afterwards like, don't tell anybody. Keep quiet about it. Uh, The demons will shout out, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And he will tell them, be quiet. Someone will be healed, uh, risen from their, their sick bed, or given sight, or, or their ears unstopped. And they will say, I know who you are, you're the son of David. And he will warn them to be quiet. Until now. Uh, Matthew 21 is the big reveal. Uh, Matthew 21, and, and the passage we just read, is the moment when the curtains are drawn back, when the disguise is ripped off, and when Jesus very clearly portrays who he is Uh, and Matthew is painting with colours from the Old Testament Uh, his paint box uh, his brush is dipped in the Old Testament to draw the different parts uh, of the story so I want to ask you two questions this morning John I've got two questions for you this morning uh, for our time together the first is this have you celebrated Christmas yet okay John that's your first question have you celebrated Christmas yet uh, let's look uh, at this royal arrival. Uh, this is the, the Queen's carriage okay, rolling out of Buckingham Palace or the, the presidential motorcade, you know, with the guys with the little earpieces in and the sunglasses all running along, hands on the, uh, the presidential car. Uh, Jesus is drawn near to the capital city uh, and they come to the Mount of Olives. Uh, the Mount of Olives is the place um, that the Jews expected the Messiah to arrive from. When you're expecting your king, uh, the book of uh, Zechariah led the Jews to believe, when you're expecting this king, this rescuer, he's going to come from the Mount of Olives. And so there's Jesus coming from the Mount of Olives towards Jerusalem. And then a big deal is made of, well, of his donkey, his method of transport. Uh, He sends two disciples into the uh, the town ahead, the village ahead, uh, to find this donkey tied up, mother and, and daughter. Jesus knows where they're going to be. It's not totally clear whether it's miraculous. 
or whether actually he's just arranged for it. But either way, he knows where they're going to be, and he knows that the disciples will be allowed to, to take them. Okay, the limo is ready. And, and, and Matthew makes a big deal of this. Matthew is, perhaps even above all the other Gospels, the, the, the Gospel that most often um, makes explicit that what is happening is a fulfilment of what was predicted, prophesied in the Old Testament. So in verse 4, we're drawn uh, our attention, our attention is drawn to this prophecy of the book of Zechariah. Uh, this took place, Matthew tells us, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, Jesus didn't need to ride. He's walked all the way from Galilee. Okay? This is like walking from the Lake District to London. Okay? It's a long journey as he approaches the capital. But right at the end, he upgrades to this donkey. Uh, why? Well, because just as the Messiah was meant to come from the Mount of Olives, the book of Zephaniah, and this particular prophecy, it's a quote from chapter 9 of Zechariah, who ministered four or 500 years earlier. Uh, this prophecy always said that the Messiah would arrive on a donkey. Strange as it may sound, riding a donkey was a sign that the rider was going to be the king. Uh, that's why when... Uh, Solomon, David's son, is announced as king. When David says, look, we're going to make Solomon king after me, he orders that Solomon come and ride a donkey uh, into town. Uh, donkeys are a sign of kingship. They've been there right since the beginning of the Bible, the very first book of the Bible, in fact. Uh, you might remember right at, uh, uh, at uh, the end of Genesis, uh, the first book of the Bible. Jacob, the father of the 12 sons of Israel, is dying. And he blesses each of the 12 sons. Each one has a particular blessing. And it's not just a kind of, you know, there, there, good luck, hope all goes well after I die. It's a specific prophecy for each of the 12, 12 sons. And in Genesis 49, Judah is told that one of his relatives will be king. Okay, so right from the book of Genesis, we've known someone descended from Judah will be the Messiah, the king. Uh, and just listen to how Jacob prophesies it. He says this in Genesis 49, the scepter, do you know what a scepter is? It's a thing that kings hold to rule. It's the kind of stick they hold when they're ruling. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. The king's going to come from this tribe, prophesies Jacob. And again, he's going to have a donkey and a colt, a foal, a donkey, a grown-up donkey and a little donkey. The donkey, bizarre as it may seem, is the mode of royal transport for a king coming in peace. Uh, a king coming to attack would be on a war horse, but a king coming in peace would ride a donkey. Uh, so the colt, the donkey, announces that Jesus is a king. He doesn't look like one. I think that sometimes we... Because we, we're used to thinking about Jesus as a king now, particularly if you're a Christian, you've been around church circles for a while, it, it seems obvious, okay, Jesus is the Messiah, he's the king. But just think how ordinary he looked. He's got a very ordinary name, I think I mentioned this last week. The name Jesus, in, in Jesus' day, was just an ordinary name, just, just Josh. He comes from a very ordinary place. Verse 11, he's, he's the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. 
That is not somewhere that people would look to for a God's king to arrive. It is, it's like saying, well, Steve from Bolton is here. He's the son of God. Come to rescue us. Okay, I don't mean to be blasphemous, but it, it, it is that kind of, it is that strange. Well, we might as well be honest about that, mind we? But because we know, even as Christians, we find it hard at times to live as if Jesus is king of the universe. To live as if this whole universe is under his royal rule. It doesn't look likely. Perhaps the suffering in the world makes it look unlikely. Uh, perhaps the, uh, the sin that, that remains within our own hearts and, and, and our distress just, just make it, doesn't make it look likely. Perhaps the fact that the church, at least in England at the moment, looks quite weak. doesn't make it look likely that there is a king who rules. But it's never looked likely. Even when he rode in on the donkey, it didn't look likely that this was the Messiah. That God had sent a king into the world. But Matthew just builds up the evidence to, to, to make us see that, yes, this is the Messiah. This is where the whole Old Testament has been pointing. All those rockets. Children, think of the prophecies in the Old Testament. These predictions of Jesus like fireworks. Okay, they were set off in the Old Testament. And they go zooming through and they explode into life in, in the New Testament. This is where we see all the prophecies uh, come to fruition. It's not just the cult, it's also the cloaks. Do you see what people do? Uh, most of the crowd, verse 8, spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This has happened once before in the Bible. Uh, a king called Jehu, um, someone else is on the throne uh, and um, the king on the throne at the time is a, is a bad king, a wicked king who needs to be got rid of. And so God sends his prophet to Jehu and says, you are now the anointed king. And when everyone around Jehu hears this, they take off their cloaks and they spread them on the steps of the building they're in so that Jehu will walk on cloaks rather than on the, uh, the, you know, the solid stone ground. It's a bit like rolling out a red carpet. Again, it's a sign that this man, although he doesn't hold power right now, is the person God has chosen to be king. Now, interestingly, the next thing that Jehu does, in fact, his very mission is to be sent by God to the temple where false prophets have been set up, uh, the worship of Baal. Uh, and Jehu goes there and slaughters, cleanses the temple. What's the next thing Jesus does, you see? We're not looking at it this morning, it's just whoever's preaching next week. The very next thing Jesus does, who also walks on these cloaks, he goes straight to the temple and drives out, well, not people worshiping Baal, but actually people, people claiming to worship Yahweh, the true God, but doing so in a distorted way. So the cloaks, uh, the cult, uh, the, the, the cries, Hosanna to the son of David, David, the great king, and Jesus, the descendant of him as, and of Judah. All of it points to the fact that the answer to the question of verse 10, who is this? This is God's king. This is God's king. But again, it doesn't look likely, does it? Would someone be able to look at your life and say, well, there is a citizen, there is a subject of a king. Uh, there is someone whose life is under authority. There is someone who clearly is not running their own life. Uh, there is someone who clearly is not living for themselves, but for somebody else. Uh, it's easily missed, the kingship 
of Jesus. Sorry for all the history this morning, but um, uh, Charles II, or the, the man who became Charles II, uh, uh, lost a battle. Okay, his father, some of the, I think some of the children have even learned this story, actually. So the, Charles I was, was king. He was executed. So Charles II became king. Um, but Cromwell and you know, the, the British Parliament at the time didn't really want him as king. So there was this huge battle. There was a battle at a place called Worcester. And Charles lost. And he had to flee. He had to get out of the country, children. So he was a king, at least in name. But he had to escape. Everybody looking for him. The army looking for him. Everyone looking for him. And to help him meant that you'd be put to death if you were caught. And so they disguised him. They disguised him as a, as a labourer. They dressed him up in this kind of green jacket and green trousers. And um, they put a hat on him that was described as an old greasy hat with no lining rather than his crown. Um, they taught him how to walk like a labourer and talk like a labourer. Okay, imagine that. You're getting the Queen and saying, look, you've got to look more working class, Your Majesty. So this is how you walk. This is how you speak. You just imagine them trying to do the accent and the, the walk. Is this, you know. And at one point, as they, they ride away trying to escape, that his horse... Um, gets a stone in the shoe. And so they need to, they need to take him to a blacksmith. But obviously the danger is he's going to be recognised. So Charles, in his disguise, takes the horse to the blacksmith. And slightly cheekily, Charles asks the blacksmith, have you heard about this Battle of Worcester? And the blacksmith says, yes, I did. And it's good news, the king lost. Okay. Doesn't know he's doing the king. And the king plays along and says, well, that, you know, that's good news. Um, and the king says, well, I hope they catch him. And the blacksmith fixes his horse, you know, fixes the shoe of the king uh, and sends him off saying, you, I can tell, are a good, honest Englishman who wants death for the king. <laughs> He's speaking to the king, which apparently Charles found very funny. Another house he gets sent into uh, and they arrive at this house to, to hide and Charles forgets that he's actually dressed as a servant. So he's just about to walk into the kind of, you know, the posh room where all the important people sit and someone sees him and says, no, get in the kitchen. So he goes to the kitchen and the cook gets him to turn the spit where he, they cook the animal. And he, he can't do it. He doesn't have to do it. He's never been in a kitchen. And so the cook has a go at him, scolds him, tells him off. And he says, well, I'm sorry. I've never done it before. I'm so poor. We've never eaten meat. Um, it's amazing. He got away with it. He got away. He eventually escaped uh, and, and came back years later to rule. <coughs> but why? Why did he get away with it? Well, he got away with it because he didn't look or sound or apparently walk like a king. He wasn't what people expected. There were people who looked, the king, their king, the one who would return to rule over them in just a few years, in the eye, and told him they wanted him dead. For all the prophecy that points to this moment in, in Matthew 21, for all the, uh, the wonderful way that for hundreds of years everything had been building to this royal arrival, it's still possible to look and miss that Jesus is the king. And, and part of that is God's design. Behold, said Zechariah, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. But there's a tension all the way through this passage. We're, we're both pointed to the majesty of Jesus, but also his meekness. He is humble. It is humble to ride on a donkey. Yes, it's a royal animal that was ridden on by Solomon and Jehu and, well, not Jehu, Je um, Judah, rather. But it is still a humble animal. His majesty, but also his meekness. The heights from which he's come, but also the, hu the, the humility to which he's plunged. 
Uh, this is the king who told us just a few paragraphs back in Matthew's gospel that he has come not to be served but to serve. So can you see him? Have you celebrated Christmas? Have you embraced the truth of Christmas? Uh, in verse uh, 10, we're told the whole city is stirred by this arrival. We were told something similar back in Matthew chapter 2 when Jesus was born and the wise men came and the, the news of the Messiah being born, the whole city was in, was, was in turmoil, was stirred again. Uh, the truth of Christmas is that God's king has come. Uh, the triumphal entry has happened. And so now is the time you're called to live like a faithful subject. A subject of a king you cannot see and you will not see, at least for a while. If you look at your own life, look at the last 24 hours, the last week, look even at this morning. Does it look like you're the citizen, the subject of a king? Is his word your authority in all areas of your life? Uh, does what he says matter to you more than what you think or you say? Uh, if you serve the king, you essentially don't have rights, do you? You belong to someone. Okay, the queen's butler, the queen's cook, the queen's groundskeeper, the queen's driver. They all do what she says when she says it. Uh, it's not okay for the queen to say, I want fish and chips for tea. And the cook to say, well, I fancy roast beef. We are people under authority. But amazingly, we're under the authority of a humble king. Uh, just as there's this two ways of seeing Jesus in, in Matthew 21, the majesty and the meekness, the height and the humility. Well, so there's two ways of seeing his mission. He is coming as a king. But look what the crowd cry out, verse 9. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now that is a quote too. Okay, they're not just making it up. It's not a new song. It's not kind of Keith Getty in the background. I've got something new for us today. How about Hosanna? Hosanna. Now this is a, a psalm from the Old Testament. Psalm 118. I've tried not to... We could have looked at about 15 Old Testament passages this morning and got totally lost. I've tried not to sort of turn us to them all the time. But this one we are going to turn to. Psalm 118. Because there's something in there that I think is quite stunning. Psalm 118. Psalms are about in the middle of the Bible. Uh, the songbook of the Old Testament. Page 512, if you've got one of the church Bibles. So Psalm 118. It, it's, a, it's one of the Psalms that will be sung at Passover. Okay, the reason Jesus is going up to Jerusalem, okay, ultimately is to die for us, but he's also going up because it's the Passover festival. And Psalm 118 is one of this collection they're called the Hallel Psalms. Uh, Psalm 112 onwards through 18 that will be sung at Passover, sung indeed at the, at the Last Supper, therefore most likely. But Psalm 118, look, there's the quote. Verse 25 is where the quote, quote is. Now, uh, let me read from verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, that is what the crowd cry, because Hosanna, which is 
essentially Hebrew, okay, is, is, means save us. Okay. So that save us, please, is the Hosanna cry. So as the people cry out, Hosanna, they will be saying Psalm uh, 118, verse 25. Okay, you can see that next bit, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a direct uh, quote as well. So they're quoting those votes, those verses. They're crying out to the king, in other words, to save them. And again, there's two ways of looking at Jesus. Here is a king riding in to a city that has got a wicked ruler, uh, that is under um, the dominion of the Roman Empire. And here comes a king, a messiah, riding in. And the people cry out, save us. Now, I suspect one of the reasons the city went into turmoil is they thought, well, he's going to overthrow everybody. Okay, it's, going to be, it's going to be a riot. It's going to be a revolution. But just look how Psalm 118 goes on. Blessed is he, verse 26, who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He's made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Jesus is coming. He is coming as king. He is coming to save. But what's going to happen to him? He's going to be bound as a sacrifice. He is going to be the true Passover lamb. Uh, the psalm sung about binding the, you know, the lamb that was sacrificed at Passover. But ultimately that lamb was always pointing forward to Jesus. Even as those words, you wonder, I don't know. I wonder, even as those words echoed in Jesus' ears, as he heard the crowd cry, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was confirming to him, yes, you are the king, but you're going not to a throne, but to a cross. Or perhaps better, you're going to a throne that is a cross, because it's on the cross that Jesus is lifted up. All the way through John's gospel, he says, I will be lifted up. And he's talking about the cross, because it's on the cross that he conquers, on the cross that he conquers your sin pays for it, all of it, takes it and buries it in the depths of the earth. It's on the cross that he disarms Satan, the one who would accuse you and say, you cannot be a child of God because of your sin. But on the cross, because he pays for that sin, he conquers Satan. It's on the cross he defeats death, his body and soul torn apart. But ultimately, both remaining securely in the hands of the Son of God until he rise again three days later. He has come to save, but he's come to save by being sacrificed. That is an incredible thing, is it not? Because that man on the donkey is God. The son of God. He is divine. He is the one who created each and every star and put them into place. He is the one who, who knows that the temperature at the heart of each star in the galaxy knows how each molecule is burning and combusting and whatever it else is uh, they do. He is the one who uh, knows where each creature in the ocean is, every tadpole to every whale. He is the one who knows each, uh, each blade of grass and each leaf on the tree. He is the one who knows every human being throughout history, the thoughts of all of our hearts. He is the one who sustains all things and keeps them uh, existing. He is the one before whom the angels cry, holy, holy, holy. John's gospel says that what Isaiah saw was ultimately Christ on the throne. The angels have to shield their eyes before him. He is so holy, so burningly pure. And here he is <laughs> riding a donkey. Riding a donkey to be sacrificed 
for you. Okay, this is this is the queen appearing. Okay, in a in a Skoda, you know, driving past in some second-hand clapped-out car, in order to lay her life down for the sake of her people. It is an astounding thing that you can describe God as humble. Because Jesus is God. God's son has come and he is humble. So perhaps you fear having a king. You call yourself a Christian. You want forgiveness of sins, but you don't want to commit too much. You don't want to follow too closely. Perhaps you don't want to get sucked into church too much. I don't want to give up too much of my independence. Matthew 21, first of all, tells you, you must, you must give up all your independence if you want to be saved. The king and the saviour are the same person. You can't have Jesus as saviour without having his king. But it also tells you that it's totally safe to do so. Because all of this is for your sake. He is humble. His way is a good way. Have you celebrated Christmas, the coming of this king? To rescue you. And let me just ask you a second question as we close much, much, much more briefly. Not just have you celebrated Christmas, but has Christmas made you ready for Advent? That's my second question for you this morning, children. Has Christmas got you ready for Advent? Children, as as December comes ever closer, bizarrely, you may well be given an Advent calendar. You had Advent calendars before? Um, Advent calendars, what do they do? They count down, don't they, to Christmas, to Christmas Day. But actually, when the church celebrates Advent, and it's a made-up thing, it's not in the Bible, so, you know, whatever. But when the church celebrates Advent, they're not celebrating the countdown to Christmas. Because Christmas has already happened. In fact, for that matter, just while we're at it, Chris 